Well, it's been quite a week. I've been watching the news a little bit more than normal this week, and I'd just like to share some of the things that I've observed. Christians are being beheaded and crucified in Iraq. ISIS, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria has herded religious minorities up into the mountains and is systematically starving them to death. Russia is threatening trade embargoes against the West. Ebola is claiming thousands of lives in Africa, and I understand that people carrying the virus are even on American soil. Hamas is hammering Israel with rockets, calling for the elimination of every Jew. Um, and there are anti-Israel, pro-Hamas um, protests all around the world, including one of several hundred thousand people in Chicago. On our continent, thousands of Mexican youths are flooding the American border and causing a fierce debate among Americans over amnesty for illegal aliens. Our own country is nearing an election that could see a sea change in politics as our, our conservative government could topple. Our, our provincial capital remains the crime capital of Canada with several shootings just in the last week. White City got hit by a tornado on Friday, and a young man died in a head-on collision between Yellowgrass and Weyburn. And speaking of Yellowgrass, a church member's van got stolen and was abandoned by the Yellowgrass gravel pit. Even closer to home, I've already shared this, this afternoon about my mom and uh, just that battle with dementia. And I'm sure you could all add to this litany of woe if I were to if you were to be honest about what's going on in your lives. So why am I bringing all this up? Well, I want to make the point that from a human perspective, it sometimes looks like the world is spinning out of control. It seems like there's a brick on the accelerator and the driver has bailed out of the car. Of course, the Bible warns us repeatedly of societal decay and natural upheaval as we end the, near the end of the age. But it also tells us that God is in control. He, he, he gives us the assurance in our word when we see all these things happening and beginning to happen, we are to look and lift up our heads because our redemption draws nigh. God is absolutely unsurprised by any of the things that we find so shocking. But the average Joe doesn't look at life through the lens of scripture. He looks at it through eyes of flesh. When life gives him lemons, he makes lemonade. If he's poor, he makes plans for his next meal. If he's rich, he makes plans for his next million. Rather than look to God in order to find meaning in the chaos, he puts on his blinders and carries on as though everything is fine. Though he may profess faith in God, he's a functional atheist, or at least a deist, carrying on as if God is impotent or unimportant, and he himself is the master of his own fate. In the early 20th century, a man named Arthur Walk Walkington Pink wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God. That book has since been republished, I think, at least five times. When I first read that book several years ago, I was so impressed that I modified part of it and preached it as a sermon. You might even remember that sermon. Well, I'm not going to preach that sermon today, but I do want to read a couple of pages just to get us thinking about the core teaching of today's Bible passage. 
just uh, so you know, it's in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We'll get there in a few minutes. Um, so I invite you to listen as Mr. Payne turns our thoughts toward the powerful reality of God's sovereignty. I have altered his words only slightly in order to accommodate more recent events in history. So here's part of that introduction in A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. Who is regulating the affairs of this earth today? God or the devil? Many will readily concede that God reigns in heaven, but most will deny that he reigns on this earth. More and more, men relegate God to the background through their philosophizing and theorizing. Take the material realm. Not only is it denied that God created everything, by personal and direct action, but few believe that he has any immediate concern in regulating the works of his own hands. Everything is supposed to be ordered according to the impersonal and abstract laws of nature. Thus is the creator banished from his own creation. Therefore, we need not be surprised that people in their de degrading conceptions exclude him from the realms of human affairs. Throughout the Christian world, almost without exception, the theory is that man is a free agent and therefore lord of his fortunes and determiner of his destiny. That Satan is to be blamed for much of the evil which is in the world is freely affirmed by those who, though having so much to say about the responsibility of men, often deny their own responsibility by attributing to the devil what in fact proceeds from their own evil hearts. But who is regulating the affairs of the earth today? God or the devil? Attempt to take a serious and comprehensive view of the world. What a scene of confusion and chaos confronts us on every side. Sin is rampant. Lawlessness abounds. Evil men and seducers are becoming worse and worse, according to 2 Timothy 3.13. Today, everything appears to be out of joint. Thrones are creaking and tottering. Presidents are faltering. Ancient dynasties are, dynasties are being overturned. Democracies are revolting. Civilizations, civilization itself is a demonstrable failure. We've witnessed two world wars, a cold war, two gulf wars, and a so-called war on terror. That's just naming a few. But instead of the world being made safe for democracy, we've discovered that democracy is very unsafe for the world. Unrest, discontent, and lawlessness are rife everywhere, and we nervously suspect that soon another great war will be set in motion. Politicians are perplexed and staggered. Men's hearts are failing them for fear as they witness the things which are coming on the earth. Do these things look as though God had full control? But let's shift our attention to the spiritual realm. After 20 centuries of gospel preaching, Christ is still despised and rejected of men. Worse still, he, the Christ of Scripture, is proclaimed and magnified by very few. In the majority of modern pulpits, he is dishonored, disowned, and, dis and deconstructed. Despite frantic attempts and efforts to attract the crowds, the majority of churches are being emptied rather than filled. And what are the great masses of non-churchgoers? In the light of Scripture, we're compelled to believe that the many are on the broad road that leads to destruction, and that only a few are on the narrow way that leads to life. Many are declaring that Christianity is a failure. 
and despair is settling in on many faces. Not a few of the Lord's own people are bewildered, for their faith is being severely tried. And what of God? Does he see and hear, or is he impotent and indifferent? A number of those who are regarded as leaders of Christian thought told us after World War II that God could not help the coming of that awful war, and that he was unable to bring about its termination. It was said and said openly that conditions were beyond God's control. More recently, following the catastrophe of 9-11, the question was asked, where was God? And the answer, God had nothing to do with this. Do these things look as though God were ruling the world? Who is regulating the affairs of this earth today, God or the devil? What impression is made upon the minds of those who occasionally attend a gospel service or watch an hour of TBN? What are the conceptions formed by those that hear, even those preachers who are considered evangelical? Is it not that such preachers profess to represent a God who is filled with benevolent intentions, yet unable to carry them out? That he really wants to help people, but they will not let him because they refuse to believe. Then must not the average hearer assume that the devil has gained the upper hand? And that God is to be pitied rather than blamed? But does not everything seem to show that the devil has far more to do with the affairs of the world than God has? Well, it all depends upon whether we are walking in faith or walking by sight. Friends, are our thoughts or your thoughts concerning this world and God's relation to it are they based merely on what you see with your eyes? Face this question seriously and honestly. And if you're a Christian, you will most probably have cause to bow your head in shame and, and sorrow and acknowledge that it is so. We tend to walk by sight, not by faith. Sadly, we walk very little by faith. So what does it mean by walk, to walk by faith? It means that our thoughts are formed, our actions regulated, and our lives molded by the Holy Scriptures because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. It is from the Word of Truth, and that alone, that we can learn what, what is God's relation to this world. And that's that, uh, an excerpt from the, the, the introduction of The Sovereignty of God by Arthur W. Pink. You can Google that, and it's a free PDF if you'd like to download it. So with that, we're going to turn to the Word of God, since you've been pointed there, and we're going to look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 13 through 17. Actually, we'll go into chapter 5 a little bit as well. So if you can have your Bibles open there, we'll be ready to go. <clears throat> So James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
So whether, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now you'll notice that in these verses, we're not really dwelling on catastrophe or calamity as we have in the first part of the message. But these verses address the way that people tend to carry on with little regard for God. Perhaps they would cry out to him if things were to get bad enough. But by and large, it's business as, as usual with no time for God. They make plans as if they know what lies ahead and assume that their innovation, their energy, their initiative will get them through any unforeseen obstacles. But to do this, they must ignore the obvious, the fact that their lives are a fleeting vapor and that they are not really masters of their own fate. The title of today's message is taken from verse 15, just the first seven words. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. Have you ever thought of your life in those terms? If the Lord wills, I will live. Do you truly understand that your next breath, your next heartbeat comes to you solely through the grace of the God who made you? Such a perspective is exactly what James is urging his readers to embrace. We're going to cover this passage under four headings. First, we'll look at man's arrogant plans. Then we'll look at man's actual state. Third, we'll look at God's absolute sovereignty. And finally, we'll look at man's active responsibility. We find man's arrogant plans in verse 13. Come now, James says. He's literally calling out a group of people in order to put them in their place, to give them a bit of a tongue lashing. It's called a diatribe. That's a literary term for what he's doing. But why all the fuss? It seems that all they're doing is showing a little initiative. They say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Doesn't, I mean, that doesn't sound like anything terrible, does it? Isn't that just basic capitalism? Isn't that just the way the world works? Exactly. That's the way the world works. But James is writing to Christians who have no business following the ways of the world. James is not concerned by the fact that they're planning ahead. He's concerned that they're planning ahead with no regard for the one who actually knows the future and the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is simply not in their thinking as they carry out their daily lives, though he may well be in their thoughts for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. They're acting as though they are friends of the world, and according to our previous study of James chapter 4, they are therefore acting as enemies of God. Have you ever been in a conversation where people talk to each other as if you're not there? You feel that anything you say is an annoyance and that your very presence is holding up the progress of the conversation? We can all relate to that. And we would probably say that those people are acting rudely or arrogantly. Now consider that it is God who made the mouths through which we speak, who gave us the breath of life, who gives us intelligence to think, and who has the right to take any of those things away at any time. Consider the restraint of God in allowing his creatures to continue boasting about their plans while denying his providence. 
Any such plan, any such plan that is indifferent toward the will of God is an arrogant plan. There are several examples in Scripture of man's arrogant plans. In fact, there's probably hundreds of them. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's an account of a man's thoughts. This man happens to be the king of Babylon. This, this account epitomizes human indifference toward and even contempt for God. It also happens to be the passage that is used metaphorically to describe the fall of Lucifer. There is a parallel passage, very, very similar to it in Isaiah or Ezekiel chapter 28, where it's not the king of Babylon, it's the king of Tyre, but the attitude is the same. It's a satanic self-exalting attitude. So just listen to this. Uh, it's in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, if you would like to follow along. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? Uh, o day star, in the Latin Vulgate, that was Lucifer. That's where that word comes from. How are you cut down to the ground who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the, cloud, the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Notice that these words are not even words spoken in his mouth. He said them in his heart. But God sees the heart. And he knows man's selfish motivations. People might not outright say, I will make myself like the Most High. But when they vigorously pursue their own, goal, their own goals without regarding the sovereign hand of God, that is exactly what they attempt to do. There's another example of man's arrogant plans in one of Jesus' parables. Luke 12, verses 16 to 20 says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, just like King of Babylon said to himself, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you notice all the I wills in that little parable? And all the I wills in the king of Babylon's thoughts. This man has a plan. And as far as he knows, God has nothing to do with it. You might already know the outcome of this parable. And you might know the outcome of the king who wanted to be like the most high. But we're not going to go there right now. We have looked at these examples only to demonstrate the fact that godless, arrogant planning is a perpetual problem. For humanity. Even my grandsons know how to deviously plan ahead to get what they want. There is nothing wrong with planning ahead. In fact, there is plenty of scripture to support the practice. But plans that exclude God, no matter how meticulous or intelligent, are reckless and foolish. Well, we've taken a look at man's arrogant plans. Now we're going to see just why God considers them so arrogant, so reckless, so foolish. Let's move on to our second heading, which is man's actual state. We find that in verses 14 through 15, where it says, you, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The most obvious fact about our human state, our actual state as human beings, is that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We are bound by the constraints of time. We can look back at our past experiences and more broadly to the record of history in order to observe patterns and make reasonable guesses about what might happen in the future. But the fact is, there's a wall there. We just don't know what will happen tomorrow. Do you ever find yourself worrying about what might happen tomorrow? Do you play multiple th scenarios through your mind so that you can increase your odds of reacting appropriately to a possible challenge? How might your thoughts change if you were to trust the one who is outside of time, who works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose? It's amazing how often Christians we who love God and have been called by Him end up trusting our own time-confined perspective instead of trusting God's time-independent perspective. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but He does. Speaking of time, let's look at another fact about man's actual state. We willfully deny the brevity of life in this body. Yet God's work God's word has a way of making us take notice of the things we would like to ignore. What is your life, it says. In the expanse of eternity, what lasting legacy will you leave in your 70 or 80 years on this earth? Will it be of any more significance than the dash chiseled between two dates on a tombstone? When we think in eternal terms, as Christians should, we see that our lives are indeed a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It is only through the intersection of our mortal lives with the eternal life of Christ that we find our meaning, our purpose, and our peace. So how does one's mortal life intersect with the eternal life of Christ? Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. This is from the passage we read at the beginning of the service. All flesh is grass, all, and all, is, all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. That's another way of saying life is a vapor. Last line. But the word of our God... The word of our God is forever. It is God's word that stands forever. And it is through receiving that word that our lives are elevated out of the temporal and given eternal significance. That word testifies of Jesus Christ, the one who conquers death and rescues those caught in its clutches. Just a bit later in the same chapter in Isaiah, we see Jesus Christ depicted as the arm of God coming to redeem his people. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And at the end of that chapter, we read, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint.
When we ignore the word of God, we miss the warnings of God, the promise of, promises of God, and the salvation of God. But when we read and heed God's word, we can discern between what is temporal and what is eternal. We can then make plans that seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Plans that are open to his loving intervention and indeed welcome his intervention. A person who disregards the word of God really does not know what tomorrow will bring. And is indeed in no, in, of no more account than a vapor or a dash on a tombstone. But a person who reads and heeds the word of God enters into the heavens to see the world from God's perspective. He sees what eternity will be like for the just and the unjust. He sees what it will be like for those who value profit over peace with God. Let's jump ahead for a moment into chapter 5 in James. And we're going to uh, see what the end will be like for those who disregard the warning that we're studying today. James chapter 5, and we'll read the first five verses. Come now, there's another come now, another diatribe, another tongue lashing. Come now, you, we, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. These verses pronounce judgment and indeed hellfire upon the rich, specifically those who have pursued their profit-driven schemes, ignoring God's warnings, and spurned the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we've made it very clear that being rich is not sinful, but it is also very clear that it is only by the grace of God and the miraculous transformation of a heart that a rich man can enter, to, enter into heaven because he, he has a, a, a God waiting for his worship if he's willing to worship his wealth. The evidence against these people consists of the riches they have gathered which decay and corrode under the piercing gaze of the righteous judge. The laborers testify against them exposing their idolatrous, selfish, stingy greed. These rich people, says the text, have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Not righteous people, the righteous person. A person who does not resist them. In the aggressive pursuit of their own arrogant claims, could it be that such people stand at the foot of the cross, mocking the righteous person, Jesus Christ, figuratively pounding nails into his hands and his feet. It may be a stretch, but could we not describe Jesus as the righteous person who was condemned and murdered and who did not resist those who condemned him? 
We have to move on now. We've looked at man's arrogant plans, and we've seen how those plans compare to man's actual condition. Next, we come to the central idea of the whole passage, and that is the absolute sovereignty of God. In verse 15, we read, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, th- these verses relate directly back to 13. In fact, we could leave out verse 14 and just read them back to back with verse 13 to get a clear sense of the intended contrast. So I'm going to leave out the, the little parenthesis and read it again. Come now, you who say, this is including verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. At first glance, it kind of seems like James is just encouraging his readers to make, make sure that they give God some lip service by saying, Lord willing, before declaring their plans. You know, like, Lord willing, we'll come and visit you this week. But a closer look shows that there is even, there's much more going on here than a little word mantra, a, little sanctif- a few sanctifying words. Look closely. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Whereas the arrogant person deliberately excuses God from his plans, the humble person not only includes God in his plans, but also intentionally looks to him even for life. If the Lord wills, I will live. There is no life, physical or spiritual, but that which comes from God. We saw in James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth, literally birthed us by the word of truth. By his own will, he brought us forth. That is speaking of spiritual life given to every believer. Here in verse 15, the context is physical. Matthew 6, 27 expresses the same sentiment. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The point here is that God is sovereign over absolutely everything, including life and death. Nothing happens without his knowledge and without his design. The universe did not begin with a spontaneous big bang. It began when the will of God was declared through the word of God, and he said, let there be, and it was. Nothing and no one comes into being apart from the will of God, and that is in the physical and the spiritual realm. Not only does God give life, but he also takes it away. Only a true believer can rejoice and worship God in both the giving and the taking away of life. In the story of Job, Satan asked God's permission to take Job's property and the lives of his children. God granted permission and Satan did his worst. Listen to Job's response upon hearing the terrible news of the destruction of his property and the killing of his family. Job 1, 20-22. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job's attitude is what James is getting at here. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Everything is in his hands from life's first cry to final breath. When we know this God and love this God and trust this God, we can worship him and receive with thanksgiving everything that comes from his hand. Like Job, our faith will be tested. The whole book of James is about testing of our faith. But the testing will have a purpose. It will produce steadfastness, and God will be glorified. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And if the Lord does not will that we live or do this or that, we will gladly go wherever he leads, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I love Job because he is one of the, he is the probably the earliest scriptural writer to allude to the hope of the resurrection. He said that even though his flesh is decayed, that he knows that his Redeemer lives, and that he himself will see him in his flesh, he and not another. In other words, his Redeemer lives, and because Christ lives, Job also will live. See, we know a lot more than the calamity that is coming upon the world. We also know the blessed hope the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of our bodies. Unbelievers do not share this peace because their minds are fixed on the here and now. Somehow they convince themselves that the here and now will just keep going and going and going. Remember the farmer's parable, the, the farmer in Jesus' parable who stored up well so he could eat, could relax, eat and drink and be merry? His basic assumptions that he would keep on living to enjoy his fortune. Turns out he was dead wrong. Listen to how the parable ends. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That poor rich farmer had chosen the wrong master. In his mind, the only sovereign, the only king was himself. He had planned out a long and leisurely life, but he did not even live to the end of the day. The Lord took his life. In eternity, he would come face to face with the absolute sovereignty of God, and his riches would testify against him. We must also revisit the king from Isaiah chapter 14, who wanted to be like the Most High. We see here again that God's absolute sovereignty crushes man's delusions of his own sovereignty says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. Friends, as harsh as this sounds, men, women, boys and girls who reject the sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ are headed for that pit. They boast in their arrogance. Their days are numbered and only God knows what number that is. 
They have stored up treasure for themselves in the last days and have fattened themselves for the day of slaughter. We can't afford to ignore that warning. It's time now to move on to our last heading, which is man's active responsibility. And I find it kind of interesting that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are placed side by side in this text. They are not mutually exclusive. We find this in uh, verse 17. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's responsibility. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably witnessed the debate over whether God is sovereign in salvation or whether man's free choice is the deciding factor. The sovereignty of God, uh, if God alone is the one who saves, that's called monergism. If man and God work together in their salvation, that's called synergism. And this is a, a dividing line in Christianity. Uh, it's, that's a debate that has divided churches and hindered the spread of the gospel. You, you probably already know which side of that debate I stand on. But if you don't, I'm going to lay it out anyway and, and hope that you still love me and come back next week. The Bible teaches that human beings were created with free will. God told them that they could freely eat of any of the tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, they were also free to transgress God's commandments and eat the forbidden fruit. They had, it was possible for them to do that of their own will. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their freedom and could no longer freely choose God. They were free only within the confines of their sinful nature, and so they kept sinning. The moment they ate that fruit, they died spiritually, and no act of their will could undo that death. The only thing that could save them was an act of God's free will. God promised that one day the offspring of a woman would come to destroy evil and deliver mankind from the curse brought by sin. Death, both physical and spiritual, was passed through Adam to every human, everyone who has ever walked on this earth, except one. In order to undo the death, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a man. He was born of a virgin, conceived miraculously, not by flesh, but by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Thus, he was fully human and at the same time, fully God. He endured the same kinds of trials we all face, but never sinned. No other human in history could have undone death, but Jesus did. And he did it by willingly laying down his life for sinners through his crucifixion on a Roman cross. These were sinners which he had already, before the foundation of the world, had already um, singled out to purchase for himself, to purchase for God. So there on the cross, his blood paid the redemption price, satisfying the wrath of God for everyone who would look to him for salvation, turning from their sins, trusting in his sacrifice on their behalf. Even believers who lived long before Christ died could look forward through the prophecies and the promises of Messiah and be saved by believing in the promised Redeemer. Having atoned for sin with his own blood, Jesus Christ was buried and rose from the grave on the third day, never to die again. He ascended to heaven where he now serves as our great high priest, the high priest of all his redeemed, 
interceding for them, pleading his blood as effective for cleansing of their sin. From heaven, his Father sent the Holy Spirit to bring men and women to spiritual life so that they could freely believe in Christ and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In the nature of the flesh, there is no freedom to do that. Here's the bottom line. You can't choose Jesus until he chooses you. Until he gives life, you have no more power to come to him than Lazarus had power to raise himself from the dead and come out of that tomb. It was the word of Christ that brought him to life. But once, he, once Jesus gives life, you willingly and freely and immediately come to Jesus because that is what your new heart earnestly desires. Now that's a review of the gospel. And I know you've all heard it. But we need to preach this. This is, the, this is the most encouraging and most uplifting, building, mature thing we can do as Christians. Is to revel in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you've just heard the words of life. And now you're responsible for them. The verse we just read says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The right thing to do is to acknowledge and bow before the sovereignty of God. To repent of your sin and believe the good news that Christ has died and risen again in order to pay for that sin. If God's word has brought life and faith into your heart, you can do that right now. You are responsible to step down from the throne of your heart and yield it to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't make that happen, and you can't make that happen. But there is one who, by his own will, brings forth life by the word of truth. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Is that word of truth at work in your heart right now? Even if it is not, you are still responsible for it. You've heard and you know what the right thing is. I pray that the word of God will bring life to you today. God is absolutely sovereign. He is mighty to save. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Abandon your arrogant plans. Recognize your actual state. Kneel before the sovereign God and with a new and willing heart, actively respond to God's call. Amen. We're going to have communion.